You know, I just um, I want to share with you a few things. At first, I want to just say for some of you who uh, are thinking, well, this is the, a big Sunday for Reformation Sunday because October 31st is is the day that uh, Luther um, put those 95 theses on the door. Uh, churches are celebrating some this Sunday. Next Sunday, kind of early in the service, so you can't come in, rolling in late, you'll miss it. We're going to sing together, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, in, in just giving thanks to God for that movement of God through the Reformation. So um, I just want to encourage you, some are thinking, whoa, 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 what about it? Some are celebrating this Sunday, we're going to celebrate that next Sunday. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward, and we're going to take this morning's offering, and I'm going to pray for that. And I would love for you to just take a moment to open your heart and say, Father, thank you for the blessings you have given me. Thank you for loving me. And God, I would ask that these gifts which are given in your name would be used to bless others so that others might know your love. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to ask Sandy Gilbert to come up, and Sandy's going to um, share a story with me, <clears throat> and we could have lots of different people come up and probably share this story, So, but I chose Sandy because uh, it happened in such a way that it was an invitation, and we're in this series called You're Invited, and this invitation was rather interesting because I was actually asked to meet with Sandy, and I can't remember all the people there, but I do remember the executive director for Hospitality Center for Chinese uh, at the time, Jennifer Girth, was there. And, and they were proposing to me early in my ministry, I think it was around a year, summer of 2008, the possibility of our church getting involved with HCC, Hospitality Center for Chinese. So you hear that, HCC, um, and, and then being involved in a picnic that they would do and to help then eventually have some of these students who are coming from China to go into the homes and, and, and have dinner with and meet with the people. But I said, you know, I'm all into that, but I would really love it if they would come to us first. And we had a um, a block party, kind of a picnic on a Sunday morning outside in the parking lot. And I said, how about, and I said to Jennifer, we bring them, a few of the students here, to do that. And what I'd really like is for maybe a couple of them to come and to that Sunday morning share a, two of them maybe that had received furniture because they give away free furniture to these students who have nothing when they come over here to study. Some of the brightest minds from China coming over to study. I said, how about if we do that? And I said, but I want to make sure that they're not Christians. And I didn't realize this until we started really talking about this and you shared with me some of these things, um, what you were thinking when I said that. What were your thoughts? Well, I grew up in... Um in a church that didn't uh, share the gospel much. And so this was sort of what I expected from that church. But this church is all about go and tell. So I thought you were strange. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. I just thought, well, he's the pastor and I'm not in charge. (laughs) So we'll go with what he says. And, And so when I talked to Jennifer about it, she thought that was just the right thing to do. And Jennifer Girth is brilliant. So the two of them together convinced me. So we had them come. They came to the party. Two of them, Joe and Lizzie, came up, shared about how they received furniture and how they were surprised and amazed. And they weren't Christians. They shared and then they sat down. And then what happened next? Well, we were sitting right over there, right, Lizzie? 
And the words to uh, My God, How Great Thou Art were on the screen. And I thought, not only are these students brilliant studying in another language, but I could hear them singing. Wow, um, really talented people. And then at the end of the service, I was going to compliment them, and I could see that they had tears in their eyes. And uh, Joe said... Um, you know, I'm, something moved in my heart when we sang that sacred song, and I am not a Christian. So I said, um, I know, Joe, that happens to all of us. That's the Holy Spirit of God. He wants to know you. And so then you had an opportunity and, and led, and it's great that Lizzie, you're here in front. Thank you. And, and led them into a, uh, a prayer of receiving Christ as their Savior. And, and down the road, now let's fast forward. So we are moving now towards October. It's our outreach Sunday, kind of like we did just a few weeks back. And what we were thinking about is let's have a number of these students come and, and they will go to people's homes after the service where we can just get to know them and have them um, come to our places for lunch. Now, tell us what happened in that time. Well, we had about uh, 12 um, uh, of our church families who were going to host these uh, about 40 students. And uh, so I heard the still small boy say, invite Joe and Lizzie. And I thought, well, what a good idea. I think I'll do that sometime. And then I heard again, invite Joe and Lizzie. And I, yeah, I know, but I'm busy. I'll call and talk to Jennifer later. <laughs> and then it was, invite Joe and Lizzie. <laughs> you weren't getting it, huh? You just... Oh, I was really startled. So I pulled over. And you know, growing up Lutheran, my goodness, this is very odd. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, wait a second. You... Anyway. It is. I'm a Scandinavian <laughs> on top of it. You just would never talk like this. But I called Jennifer and I said, you know, um, for our mission Sunday, when we have all the students come from the Chinese students, um, I, I, I have to have Joe and Lizzie. And um, I, I know this is irrational, but it's a matter of life or death. And I have to have them, and I will do anything to get them here. <laughs> so they came. They came. And they, I got Joe and Lizzie to my house for uh, lunch. And we had Richard uh, McClellan and um, Karen ID and um, some others. And when I was out of the room, they decided to have a Bible study. Yeah. So here's the thing. I just kind of wrap this up. Out of an invite, what was so cool is not only that Joan Lizzie came to faith in Christ, but eight to nine years later, as a result of that and how God was working and bringing them and through, you're just not even being in the room, they decided to begin a Bible study. Um, people like John McCollum and Rich, I could go on names and I'm, I'm going to lose out by doing that. So a whole lot of people gave time and energy and began to drive them on Sunday mornings back and forth. And now eight to nine years later, we have had hundreds of Chinese students come through these studies. 
And many of them have gone back to their homes as believers and have shared their faith. We even had a mother come and visit who could not understand a thing of English that was going on here, but was so moved by the presence of God in the service that she wanted to know what it meant to follow Jesus and to know the love of God. And we um, have been able to see God do something that we could never have done on our own. But the Spirit of God initiated and prompted, and all we did was, even in cases like invite, (laughs) responded and said, God, let's invite. Let's do that. So thanks for sharing that. I'm going to ask you to stand, if you would, and I'm going to read uh, this story. They're not going to be up on the screen. I actually uh, took a lot of it from the Message Bible, but I also did took some others together and compiled like I did last Christmas when we did stories. And I just want you to hear the Word of God. So I'm going to ask you to stand, and this is what I call Stories of the Lost. Stories of the Lost. Luke 15. By this time, a lot of men and women of doubtful reputation were hanging around Jesus, listening intently. The Pharisees and religious scholars were not pleased, not at all pleased. They growled. He takes in sinners and eats meals with them, treating them like old friends. Their grumbling triggered this story. Suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and lost one. Wouldn't you leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the lost one until you found it? And when found, you can be sure you would put it across your shoulders rejoicing. And when you got home, call in your friends and neighbors saying, celebrate with me. I found my lost sheep. Count on it. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner's rescued life than over 99 good people in no need of rescue. Or imagine a woman who has 10 coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and scour the house looking in every nook and cranny until she finds it? And when she finds it, you can be sure. She'll call her friends and neighbors. Celebrate with me. I found my lost coin. You can bet. That's the kind of party God's angels throw every time one lost soul turns to God. To further illustrate the point, Jesus told them one last story. There was once a man who had two sons. The younger said to his father, Father, I want my share of the estate now instead of waiting until you die. So his father divided his wealth between them. Not long after that, the younger son packed his bags and left for a distant country where he squandered his wealth in wild and reckless living. And after he had gone through all his money, there was a bad famine all through the country, and he began to be in need. Hurting and desperate, he persuaded a local farmer to hire him to care for and feed his pigs. He was so hungry that even the slop he was feeding the swine looked good to him. No one would give him anything. That finally brought him to his senses. He said to himself, All the hired men working for my father get three meals a day, and here I am starving to death. I'm going back to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against you, and I've sinned against God. I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as your hired hand. And he got right up, and he went to his father. 
And when he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His heart pounding, his father ran out and embraced him and kissed him. And the son started his speech. Father, I've sinned against God and I've sinned against you. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. Just let me be. But his father interrupted. Son, you're home now. Turning to his servants, he said, quick, bring a set of a clean set of clothes and dress him. Put the family ring on his fingers and sandals on his feet. Then get a grain-fed heifer and roast it. Let's have a feast. It's time to celebrate. My son is home. Once dead, but now alive. He was lost and is now found. And at that moment, the party began and everyone began to celebrate. Yet all this time, his older son was out in the field. And when the day's work was done, he came in, and as he approached the house, he heard the music and dancing. Calling over one of the servants, he asked, what's what's going on? He told him, your brother came home. Your father has ordered a feast. He's killed the the calf where we've been fattening because he has him home safe and sound. The older brother stalked off in an angry sulk and refused to go in and join the party. His father came out and tried to talk to him, but he wouldn't listen. The son said, Look how many years I've stayed here serving you, never giving you one moment of grief. But have you ever thrown a party for me and my friends? Then this son of yours who has thrown away your money on horse shows up and you go all out with a feast. His father said, Son, you don't understand. You're with me all the time, and everything that is mine is yours. But this is a time for joy. We had to celebrate. Your brother was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would take these stories of the lost and open our hearts to your heart. Come, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This is a really interesting story when you read it because um, it is full of questions that were the similar, really similar questions 2,000 years ago. Questions that some religious scholars and, and some Pharisees who were living a very moral and good life were asking and, and they were trying to figure out how in the world uh, Jesus could hang around with some of these people. How, how does God really think and feel about people who are lost or confused or wayward or immoral? How does God feel about people who willfully reject him? How does God feel about people who live in his church and are self-righteously far from him. How does God feel about you? Let's think for a moment. What do you think God thinks about you? See, daily Jesus was handing out invitations to lost, confused, ignorant, and disreputable, irreligious rebellious people, even self-righteous, holier-than-thou people were given 
invites. He, he, he was just giving invites out right and left to everybody, saying, you're invited. You're invited to experience the love of God and to walk with him. Because people matter to Father God. Jesus was on a crusade inviting anybody and anyone into relationship with the Father. Because Jesus knew in his heart every child of God matters deeply to his Father. So in these stories, what I want us to look at this morning is, is these three stories are told from three different perspectives. And they're told to help us understand the heart of God. And here's what I want you to hear as well. Also told to help us form the heart of God into each and every one of us. That's why I think the last story has kind of an interesting ending to it. But let's just look at these three common things. Because there's three common things in each of the stories. And the first point is really a simple one that I want you to think about. And that is very much this concept and idea. That which is lost, is valuable. See it in all three stories. Verse 4, someone, so he says, suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and lost one. And verse 8, imagine a woman who has ten coins and loses one. Verse 11, there's a man who had two lost, who had two sons. And he, he lost one who had left. And the other son never left yet, we'll find, was still lost. And the common thread of each of these stories is that what has been lost is priceless. It's so valuable that it can't be replaced. You just can't get another. There's no price tag you can put on it that would be equal to its worth. Try putting a price tag on your child. And what would you give? That's the value of a prized possession. Maybe a letter that has some sentimental value to you. A ring. That's really not worth much, but it's worth everything to you. Maybe it's something that's been handed down from a father or a mother or a grandparent. Or someone who loved you dearly. You see, you know what is missing in each story. What I find is very interesting is in each story there's something missing. One lamb out of 100 had been lost. Much greater than the loss of the revenue of that one lamb was the fact that shepherds became very attached to their lambs. I mean, think about little lambs. They, they, they know you. They each were given names and they knew. I mean, I couldn't look at one of them and tell the difference, but they knew each one. Each had a name. You think of these little, these little lambs. They, they would actually hear the voice of the shepherd and they would just start to move right towards them. I don't know if it was their dependency or their just innocence. But shepherds were attached to their sheep in such a way that if one left, they would go and search and take great risks to find it. Now, if you think of the shepherd's commitment to a lamb, you might think that's a bit odd. But let me just kind of help bring it home for you. Because I want you to think for a second about a pet and reflect on America's obsession with pets. Every year, as I drive out of our, our neighborhood area, on one of the telephone posts or those electric posts, 
is a, a, a little poster, and it's so often it's up there, there's a little poster with the big words lost, and there's a picture of, of, a, of a dog, or, and even cats get put on these things. <laughs> Did you know how much, do you have any idea how much we pay to take care of a pet? Americans' pet addiction, I was reading, has been skyrocketing by the billions for nearly two decades, with early estimates saying U.S. spending statistics on pet food gear and, and vet visits could reach over $69 billion this year. This is a 2016 study, according to the American Pet Products Association, APPA. All familiar with that? You should. It, it, it brings in lots of money. Anyway. And a majority of the cash, around $28.3 billion, is going straight to the pet food industry. According to new research from Global Data, last month, half of all the pet owners are opting for more clean eating options, forcing many companies to scurry to produce more and more premium food options. One person said, just like it's important for us to give our families good nutrition, our pets are like members of our family too. But it's just not food. Another hefty expense is vet care. And according to the survey conducted by the APPA, this is 2016 figures again, the average dog owner spends $551 a year on surgical vet visits as well as an additional $235 a year on routine checkup visits. Other yearly expenses include kennel boarding for about 333 grooming for 83 This is average. Vitamins for 62 and toys for $47. Additionally, the pet craze, particularly with dogs, seems to go much deeper than just spending cash. This threw me for a loop. A recent survey from the SunTrust Mortgages found that dogs are becoming one of the biggest factors in whether millennials buy a home or not. SunTrust found that one-third of millennials age 18 to 36 who purchased their first home did so because it had a yard and better space for their dog. By a far less margin, Neither getting married or having kids drove that decision. Quote, millennials, according to the president and CEO of SunTrust, have strong bonds with their dogs, so it makes sense that furry family members are driving home buying decisions. So ease up on the shepherd, right? We may not know the attachment to a lamb, but we know what it means to be attached to something we love dearly. One coin out of ten. This woman hysterically turns over everything to find this one little coin and every piece of furniture is moved and every corner in the house is looked at it. She took a flashlight if she could have one and a broom and she swept in every corner. And most likely this coin had some kind of sentimental value. May have had some expense and worth, but it probably was attached to um, like a prized jewelry. It wasn't just a quarter that fell out of her pocket. She had ten quarters and one fell. Some think this may have been a bracelet that was a marriage bracelet or a necklace that, that held up. But whatever it was, its value was incredible. And then you see one son out of two. What's lost? One son out of two. Seriously, what's the big deal? You just get another son, right? You already have one. If you can't relate to the other stories, maybe you will this one. As the parents, as you would know if you were a parent, you've done your best 
Your child wants out, you watch that child leave, and as they head down the road, you see far beyond the horizon. You actually see the pain and sorrow ahead of them as they move out in their immaturity, taking the gifts that they have and have been given. And your precious baby is gone. That little child that you held, that you loved so much, who is worth far more than any earthly treasure has left and he's angry and he swears that he will never return again. Now as people listen to Jesus, I'm certain a little light bulb of understanding went off in their head. It kind of probably began to flicker. Especially those who felt little worth before God. You can see some of them who are standing back, somewhat self-righteously in judgment, looking at other people And they're hearing this message, but there were some, the light bulb was beginning to flicker because they had been thinking all their life, you know, I'm just one of all humanity. I'm just, not just even one of 100, I'm just one of billions. I'm nothing special, I'm not that gifted, I don't have anything prized necessarily in the eyes of others. I'm quite easily replaced at work. The world, even those around me, won't really miss me much. Who am I that God would care about me? And they hear the story and the light begins to flicker in their head and their heart and their understanding. Because getting the point of this story, you matter to God. God is the shepherd. You are the one lost lamb, so significant, so attached to God that if you're lost, he would miss you. You are that valuable to him. You you are this one that cannot have a price tag put on you. And God is that woman who is heart sick for anyone who is lost or fallen away from his presence. Your worth in his eyes is not about your own worth. It's in his heart. It's about his love for you. God is the father. We are that precious child. He grieves at our self chosen rejection and rebellion which has left us wandering away from him because you matter to God you are that precious lamb that irreplaceable coin that cherished child his heart breaks for love for you and the people I think listening got the message people matter to God People matter to God. Lost people, confused people, wayward people, ignorant people, rebellious people, irreligious people, even self-righteous people matter to God. You, me, those around you at work, in your neighborhood, at school, or wherever, they matter to God. And Jesus stood before all these people, both the disreputable and the reputable, and invited them into an honest, humble, dependent relationship with their father God. Now imagine if you think about it, two things occurred in their minds as they began to grasp this truth. As the light was flickering and it began to flicker in their heart, some began to grasp the enormity of God's incredible love and they were probably moved to worship. Think about it. If you start to really get your head around it and your heart into it, you begin to start to think, wow, this is the best news. This is incredible. This is the best news I've ever heard. I want to love and worship a God who has the divine capacity to look beyond my sin and still treasure me, the sinner. 
Because human love just doesn't work like that. This is the God I want to love. And your heart begins to expand in a sense of worship as you think about this God. I want to worship a God who can look beyond my rebellion and my immaturity, my foolish choices, and still value me the person. I want to worship a God who has the kind of heart that I look at some people and I go, I, I just can't hardly stand them, but yet God loves them. And not just stands them, actually values them deeply. I imagine some were thinking these thoughts and they felt just like the coin or the lamb or the son who, who maybe in their heart had for years wandered in doubt and, and, and were angry and maybe cursed God or they were just ignorant and didn't even give God the time of day. And they were awed by a God willing to endure years while they chase money and a career and power and prestige and hobbies and were so caught up in their own life. And I'm guessing that when that reality of the truth of that began to hit and they began to to worship God, they didn't just worship God. I'm guessing that some began to actually confess in their hearts a need to be forgiven. A need to come before him in, in a repentant and humble spirit. Forgive me, God, for attaching such human notions of love to you. Forgive me for ignoring you. Forgive me for doubting your love. Forgive me for turning my back to you. Forgive me, even some of them, forgive me for how I've looked at other people without your eyes. And humble, they began to feel genuine sorrow for thinking that they could actually set conditions on the love of God. And in a spirit of repentance, they saw how they had spurned or wandered or ignored or stood self-righteously for so long in the presence of their Father God. And Jesus is telling this story about how valuable people are to him. But he also has something else in it that's kind of common to each of these three stories. It's not just about their value. That which is lost is valuable. But there's another thing that's really incredible about this. That which is lost warrants an all-out search. Now, Now it tells you not just how valuable, but just how incredibly, immeasurably valuable they are. Each story, there's this huge search that takes place for the lost. Shepherd leaves in 99. He gives his attention to the one. He risks his life to save that one lost lamb. The woman ransacks her home. She leaves nothing unturned in her pursuit. You ever had that happen where you've lost something and you, and you kind of, you're looking for it? And I do this about once a day with my wife. Can't find my keys, you know, that kind of, And I try and enlist her for the search. She's, you know, anyway. The father is wise enough to know that to run after his rebellious son would only push him away. So the father catches searches in the only way he can. You read this story and you find that he stands at the edge of this property and searches the horizon in hope, waiting for his wayward son to return. Here he stands. I would think every time he'd go out and look at his fields and he'd see the servants working the fields and he would be a part of it. He would stand looking over the horizon, just hoping, just longing. His search was, God, would you bring my son back? 
So valuable are we to God that he searches in whatever way is appropriate to bring us back home into a relationship with himself. And here's what's really interesting about this. Guess what? Some of you might think that you were the one that began the search. God initiates the search. So great is his love that he enlisted all of heaven to bring back every lost person who's willing to come back to him. His son, his spirit, the angels, and the sons and daughter of humanity, those who have actually experienced his incredible love. He enlists all of us in all of creation as a search party. All, all of creation stands in wonder, drawing people to God. Everything, in every way that he can, in every appropriate fashion that he can, he goes after each and every person. God initiated a search party for you. And the reason you're here this morning is because of how deeply he loves you and that he would search after you. Ever wondered how God orchestrated the people and events in your life to bring you to him? It could be the lights kind of flickering a little bit. Ever wonder why you keep turning, running into committed Christians if you haven't ever opened your heart and said, yes, God, come in? Have you ever wondered? Do you remember in maybe your own life at one point you kept saying, God, this is uncanny. Ever wonder why God allowed you to go through a painful trial? It's not because he doesn't love you. It's because through that, he was hoping that even in that, like that son, you'll come to a place of need and you'll say, I'm insane running from my father. You are so valuable that God sent Jesus to hand out invites. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. For God did not send his son, catch this, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. I want you to hear that again. There is a day of judgment that will come, but it's not yet. It's not yours, it's not mine. It wasn't even Jesus's. For God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save, to search, to rescue, to restore the world through him and us. That which was lost was of inestimable worth to its owner, and it warranted an all-out search, because God is that shepherd who leaves a whole lot of people who are well off and good to search for one. God is that woman who is heart sick for anyone who is lost and fallen away from his presence, whose worth in his eyes is not about who they are, but about what's in his own heart for them. It's about his love. Catch us, always remember this and be humbled by it. He is not, frankly, that impressed with your love for him. He loves that you love him. He loves that you respond to him. He loves that I respond to him. He loves that in a humble place we come to a recognition that it's all about his love for me, for you. And God is that father and we're that precious child and God searches high and low and God waits patiently day in and day out longing for the day to invite you back into his loving presence. I asked my uh, daughter if she would let me bring this. Um... How many of you think this would warrant any kind of an all-out search? (laughs) Right? It's tattered, it's torn, it's shorn, it's held together by a few threads. If you found this laying around, 
you'd probably toss it as a piece of garbage. Because honestly, if you saw this laying around, you'd kind of go, who wants this thing? But I have to tell you, even my holiness, I do it with a sense of awe and fear and trembling. Because my daughter said, you better take care of this. Its value is immense. Not inherently. I mean, you put this over you, it's not going to give you any warmth. Let's face it. But its value is in the heart of the owner and also the owner's family. And all searches would be conducted for this when it was lost. Let me tell you, ridiculous amounts of money would be paid when it was left in Florida to have it actually shipped back home. (laughs) It warranted... After a tired day and maybe a meal out, it warranted turning all the way back and going back to a restaurant to get this. It was of such value. And you look at it and you go, you got to be crazy. Seriously. Throw it away. So great is its value. So extensive would we search. Because this is my child's blankie. And although she doesn't use it today, it still retains value. Folks, I don't care what you feel like or what you think you look like in the presence of God. I don't care what you think the person that you just think is somewhat despicable is like. God looks at him like this. And loves him deeply. And our love wanes. Even those of who have experienced this incredible, gracious, forgiving love of God, we forget. It's so easy that we forget. And we fail to let God's love form our hearts. And we fail to join the search and rescue party. And we forget what it means to be lost and confused and ignorant and caught up in our temporary things of life. And yet God doesn't because his love isn't like ours. It's so easy to forget, so easy to get distracted. It's so easy, folks. It's so easy. I do it so easily to become self-righteously where we just begin to devalue people out of our own opinions and beliefs. The very same people that God looks at and goes, they matter so much to me. We see street people, starving people, immigrant people, tattooed over all over their body people, skinny jean people, Wealthy yacht driving people, bribery news people, CNN news people, gay people, transgender people, straight people, black lives matter people, blue lives matter people, nutritious food people, junk food people, country people, suburban people, metro people, Muslim people, Hindu people, Buddhist people, Catholic people, Lutheran people, Methodist people, Baptist people, Pentecostal people, all kinds of people. We put them in our little box and it's so easy for us to self-righteously stand back and kind of go, who would love them? I can hardly stand them. And as the old Sunday school song goes, red and yellow, black and white, they are all, they are all precious in his sight kind of people. And Jesus was so clear. People matter to God. And he had to say it. Here's the, here's the twist in the story. There's one story that's a little different. There's a guy who's a son who's standing out there. And here's what I want you to hear. You can be here in the father's house. You can hang around the father in his place and be as lost. And in fact, more lost than the lost one that went away. And I don't want to take it for granted for any person here. If the heart of God like that is not forming your heart, you better ask yourself, God, 
Am I like that person who's standing in judgment on the outside? Or am I a part of the search and rescue team? And are my eyes and my heart growing? And I have to tell you, my heart, it's not like I've got this down. So I'm not trying to say this in any way hypocritically. I'm just telling you the word of God. If your heart isn't getting formed so that you see people like this and you say, God, how do I love? Our job is not to try and convert. That's the spirit of God. Our job is to love and to serve. And we have made this statement, and that's why we do these prayer things. That's why we do a, a trunk or treat. You can think what you want. Our job is to serve this community in the love in the name of Jesus. And that's what we're about. And I'm going to ask the worship team to come. Because I want to share with you, because we're going to just take some time to sing. There's one similarity that I didn't talk about in this story. You know what it is? That which is found calls for a celebration. Isn't that cool? You know what hit me about each of these stories? It almost is taken for granted that God loves people and that he'll initiate an all search to bring them back. But each story primarily emphasizes is the fact that when they're found, there's a party thrown. There's no anger, no shaming, no guilting, no browbeating, no I told you so, no you deserved it, no you fooled, no anything. The father just said, son, I'm so excited, I want to celebrate. Years ago, God threw a party for me and for some of you. And some of you may have never experienced that. And God is calling you right now to say, you know what, you are not this. You are loved deeply by me. I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to sing this song in response.